The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Higher inflation, lower growth, weaker household incomes. Why is Britain doing worse than most similar economies? Everyone suffered during COVID, but not all of the G7 advanced economies returned at the same rate. By most measures, the UK was at the back of the queue. And with record government debt, political and industrial turmoil, the country feels, well, broken. So where did it all go wrong? And what can be done to put it right? We'll look at all of that this week on the Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So, you know, I do wonder, Roger, just how mm. much of, of all of this, the reason why we find ourselves in a situation where we are doing so much worse. I mean, obviously... I know what you're going to say. I know well, what you're going to say. The Brexit word. Yeah, the B mm. word. How much is it... I know. Is it all down to Brexit or is it just 90%? I'm willing to say 10% of it is other things, but Brexit yeah, has to be a big a part of this. You're a terrible Ramona. No, but I, I basically agree with you. I mean, it, it obviously, there has to be something that has, that has hobbled us. Um, now, there may be many things, but the most obvious thing that's different, I suppose, mm. uh, is that. Um, but I think it's it's probably a bit more complicated than that. I think there is other things. There are certainly a certain element, I think, of government um, ineptness. I mean, God knows, you know, we've gone through some pretty inept leaders mm. uh, in the, the aftermath. Uh, we had a chancellor who was there for like 30 seconds. Yeah. So you, you have to say, tr- in terms of the leadership, it's not good. And trying to impose austerity, which is really what's happening again, isn't it? At a time when uh, people are struggling. So, you know, you are going to, obviously, we're, we're going to feel that. But also, how much of it is the financialization of the UK economy? Is something I want to investigate today. Well, come on, what do you we, mean by that? Well, so much of what we make is tied up in making money from having money. So when money isn't making much money, we're a bit screwed. Whereas other mm-hmm. countries which make stuff and export it, uh, they don't feel the, the ravages of uh, of the downturn quite so much. So better uh, we went back to getting mid- widgets out, and that, that's what yes, we need to do. We, uh, there's a big demand for widgets right now, and uh, if we made them, because everyone stopped making widgets ages ago, uh, whatever widgets are. But yeah, I mean, I wonder mm. whether that is part of it as well. Uh, and yeah, and, you know, there are a multitude of factors. <laughs> but I do, but at the end of the day, I do think getting back to Brexit, the idea that actually we have imposed this constraint on getting stuff into the country. Uh, and uh, and getting stuff out of the country as well. Uh, when we have, we we know so much of this is driven by supply chain problems, and we we have got a, a you know we have just imposed big supply chain problems before the rest of the world had them. Yeah, but uh, but, but they've all got problems. I mean, okay, the G seven. It's not all EU. Um, mm. There are plenty of countries that don't have those. That kind of thing. So, in fact, uh, yeah. we know we're not necessarily at a big disadvantage compared to I don't know Japan, are we? No, but you look at uh, you know, well, look at Japan and China, where they've you know not pushed up interest rates. I mean, there's another question as well: is monetary policy working? That's something else we can look at today. But I mean, they have you know not gone down this road of pushing up interest rates. Mm-hmm. China, because they produce so much of the stuff themselves domestically, so they can look yeah, after but themselves. But also because their economy is actually almost on its knees. The latest growth in China is about zero point eight percent. I mean, yeah. they are not doing well. No, they're not. That's true as well. So, look, there's a lot to explore today, and we'll try and get to the bottom of it. You know, are, are we actually doing materially worse? Because you, you look around London, for example, and there's a lot of people doing quite well. Uh, but, it will, you know, you also look at the number of people relying on food banks as well. So, we've, you know, they yeah. used to call – people were talking about the, the K-shaped recovery, weren't they, at one stage? Yes, remember we went gosh, through, yes. We went through talking about a U-shaped recovery, and then yeah. that turned into a K-shaped recovery, and then we just dropped the letters entirely. But, I mean, it is a bit of a K-shaped recovery, the K being that we've 
come out of this with some people doing quite well and other well, people being absolutely ravaged yeah, by the economy. The, the man who knows all the answers to these questions is Simon French. And we'll talk to him in a second. But first of all, we have to talk about Wigmore Associates oh, yes. because if you are uh, managing to accumulate a bit of wealth despite everything or you want to hang on to what you've got now more than ever is the time to talk to the experts in wealth management. And those experts are Wigmore Associates, um, not a big wealth management company where the money and assets are in the hands of invisible people hidden behind big company processes because at Wigmore Associates, they are a boutique asset management company um, that will listen to your aspirations and mould a plan to suit you, whether it's maximising your retirement income, ensuring you're managing your tax effectively or transferring your wealth to your family members when you've gone or maybe not your family, whoever you want to give it to. You might want to surprise a few people and give it to someone totally unexpected. Uh, Get in touch with Wigmore Associates at wigmore-associates.co.uk. You'll find their email at their website as well, or you can give them a call on 0207-224-3400. Now, what were you saying about Simon Um, French? Tell them, tell them that we sent you. That's important. (laughs) So, Simon French, go on, do the intro. Yes. Well, he is the Managing Director, Chief Economist, and Head of Research at Panmure Gordon, and he has appeared on this podcast before, just last year. So we're very keen to catch up with him and get a sense of why this big difference exists between us and the other G7 members. Let's bring him in now. So, I mean, just how bad is the UK economy right now? Because, I, you know, if you go into London, you see people enjoying themselves. People obviously have still got money. They're getting on with life. They don't seem to be struggling. But then the Trussell Trust reckon that last year there were three million emergency food parcels distributed through food banks last year, which is one third higher than 21 to 22. You know, a third increase in, in food parcels. So clearly there's a huge disparity, isn't there? Uh, you are alluding to uh, a challenge that faces anybody trying to interpret UK economic statistics, because since the start of the year, actually the growth outlook, if one agrees that GDP is the least bad measure of measuring the economy, has actually been on an upgrade cycle going into the year consensus was for the UK economy to shrink by almost 1%. Now consensus is actually for the UK economy to grow. So while it may sound very Panglossian and tone deaf to suggest that things have got considerably better over the last seven months, that's actually what the data is telling us. But you also speak to the fact that this has been a very unequal recovery. And when food staples of the like you're describing, food, energy, where they make up about a third of the budget of low-income households, but less than 10% of the budget of high-income households. That means that when they rise, in the case of energy, by more than 100%, in the case of food, up 20% year on year, that squeezes different parts of the income distribution rather harder. And it's been a harder recovery for poorer households than it has been for richer households. And, and, and the other factor in all this is, yes, you know, you quote the GDP, which, as you say, isn't perfect, but it is a measure of a kind. But even on the, the orthodox financial data, nevertheless, mm. for a fair while, we have been behind the G7 curve. I know now Germany's in recession, other things could be said, but we seem to have come out worse yeah. and slower. Why is that? Uh, so you're absolutely right. Uh, based on, I mean, uh, the consensus, again, uh, framed by the IMF and the OECD, if one looks at the US economy, it's expected by the end of next year to be 7% bigger than it was pre-pandemic. The Eurozone, 4% bigger than pre-pandemic. The UK, about the same size as it was pre-pandemic. So you're absolutely right. The data is pointing to a slow recovery and as being a laggard against our comparators. The interesting question is why? Well, 
I think there's a couple of factors. One is um, working age and activity. It's a bit of a mouthful. Let's unpack that. That is the number of people aged 16, 64 who are unfit for work or not seeking work. It's about 9 million people in the UK. And that has gone up since before the pandemic, whereas in most other G7 countries, it's either flat or gone down. And that means fewer workers reduced labour income, more people on benefits relying on public services. That's probably the major reason why the UK economy has been a laggard. But then also we have to talk about the B word, Brexit. Brexit has... <laughs> I'm added- glad you said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Phil is rejoicing at this moment. I <laughs> gave him a bit of a well, I mean, clear, I mean clearly, because it gets, it gets back, and we need to go back to why, of course, so many people are uh, out of the workforce as well. Why are we so different on that? But on Brexit, I mean, this all started as uh, a su- driven by supply constraints. And obviously the supply constraint has another level to it added in our country. It does, and there's still more to come in the fourth quarter this year, trying to look forward, not be the economist who only talks about the past because that's the easiest thing to talk about. (laughs) Trying to look forward. There are additional frictions, animal health and food checks uh, Mm. on EU imports, which have been delayed four times. The government plans to introduce those at the end of the year. I'll give you a reasonable price that they'll be delayed for a fifth time. Why? Because um, crucial imports into the UK economy are going to be more expensive with additional trade frictions. We've tried over the course of the last half a dozen years to to minimise those, but they're not going to be zero. They're going to add to the cost of doing cross-border trade. And it's one of the salient things in the UK data. It's become less trade intensive. And if you make an economy less trade intensive, it becomes less efficient, less productive. That is one of the big headwinds to UK economic output at the moment. But but, but to state the the obvious in this, Simon, there are many, many countries in the G7 who are not EU. There are several who are not EU. They have the same sort of constraints in that sense. Is it just that we're not used to being being on our own? Or is there something inherent in the kind of connections we had that we can't be without? It's an adjustment. And uh, uh, there are some very highly respected economists who I think point out that the long-term growth path, and of course, in the long term, we're all dead, to to, to, to rather butcher a quote of a much more famous economist than I, um, but in the long term, there's no reason why the UK can't grow at the same rate it did within the EU as outside the, uh, as outside the EU as it did within the EU. But there is an adjustment process, and that adjustment process costs time, it costs money, and it slows your growth over the near term. Um, and I doubt you'll ever be able to fully catch up. So, so for, for comparing those countries' growth profiles who are outside the European Union is slightly comparing apples with pears because they're not going through the same adjustment process to introducing frictions that had otherwise been taken away in our, our trading relationships. So here's a dangerous thing. Uh, Here's a journalist with numbers in front of him. But if I'm reading this right, we had a 109 billion trade deficit in 2022 compared to a 35 billion trade deficit in 2019 and sort of like around that number for the years that Mm. preceded that. So that with a massive increase in our trade deficit. So, I mean, that's got an impact on the state of the economy. I mean, if we are selling less and, and and buying in more but i think both have gone down quite a bit but we've got a service economy that that that, that surely is is fine on that basis isn't it oh yeah sure i mean there's 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 lies damn lies economic statistics and there's trade statistics at the very sort of (laughs) long end of the sort of uh, distribution um i would caution on that data because of course the 
trade has been hugely influenced by the importation of fuel over the course of the last couple of years. And therefore, part of the expanding trade deficit is a little bit artificial because we've had to export, uh, sorry, import, because we're a net importer, um, much more costly energy. But you are correct that um, anybody who suggested, and I think David Davis, the former Brexit secretary, was amongst them, that uh, depreciation of the pound and leaving the European Union would do wonders for our trade data. Certainly, even if you strip out the energy component, there is zero evidence that it has improved the trade balance, which is one of the dual deficits alongside the fiscal deficit. That means that international investors looking to allocate to the UK have chosen to under-allocate over the last six or seven years. And that is crystal clear in the data. There are always pockets where they have allocated, but in aggregate, there is an under-investment problem that has been fueled by that dual deficit problem. Yeah, and then, then the question is, you know, what do we make? I mean, we are, you know, heavily financialized economy. We make money from, you know, helping money grow or move money around. Mm. But, you know, beneath the surface, the real economy, it's hollowed out, obviously, quite a lot over the, the last few decades. So mm. doesn't that make it worse for us as well? Because when money struggles, you know, when, uh, you know, when we're in a situation we are now where the, you know, the, the just basically finance generally around the world is going through a hard time, mm. we're going to feel it more than most because it's so much more of our economy, aren't we? Uh, yeah. That's right to a point. I mean, all major developed economies have seen their manufacturing sectors, so the sectors that produce stuff, diminish as a proportion of their GDP. The UK appears to have done that slightly more than, for example, Germany and France and Italy are our major comparators. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't overstate uh, that impact. I think what is more of a, if you like, a critique uh, of the UK economy, and one of that is exposed during the pandemic, is the degree to which it has strategic manufacturing capacity, be it um, elements of, you know, PPE, the pharmaceutical sector that were relevant at the onset of the pandemic, or indeed uh, our manufacturing in the case of um, energy and the technology supply chain that will be necessary to grow our way out of the pandemic. Um, and I think, you know, I have been very, I also sort of uh, moonlight as a journalist from time to time by writing a column. I've written a lot of columns in recent years about the lack of a sustained industrial strategy in the UK that mm. um, recognises that laissez-faire free market economics will only take you so far and actually in an environment even before the Inflation Reduction Act introduced by the US, there were tanks parked on the lawn by other major economies on their industrial strategies. The UK has seen a bit tone deaf over the last 30 years not to have a trade uh, industrial in strategy that targets those kind of you know, strategic manufacturing capacities that we've missed in recent years. Well, let's come back to the industrial strategy in a moment. But one of the things you mentioned earlier on was about the workforce not getting back into work for whatever mm. reason. And there's been statistics about the number of people who are off sick, uh, huge numbers in various ways. But what is going on there? Because that's not Brexit. No. That's something else. And, and from the numbers of the best part of nine million people working age and active, two and a half million of those are deemed as long-term sick. Um, that has risen by half a million since the start of the pandemic. From what we can establish is the fact that we had to close large parts of the NHS down in order to deal with a pandemic meant that pre-existing health conditions, mental and physical health conditions that had treatments that enabled people to stay in the workplace were disrupted. Those treatments were disrupted. 
And as a result, um, their work readiness coming out of the pandemic is impaired. So this is why government is trying to throw a load of money at work coaches, back to work programmes, childcare to try and reduce um, that. And then, of course, the NHS itself to try and re reduce a waiting list, which has swelled to more than 7 million people and will probably grow to be about 9 million based on current forecasts. That is the impediment to the UK's supply side being able to offer up the kind of workers that British businesses are still demanding in huge numbers. Right. Plus, of course, there's less workers coming in from overseas because of Because of Brexit, Brexit. yes. With, not true. Yeah. Not true. Not, not true. There are not fewer workers coming in from overseas. There are the same, if not more, workers coming in from overseas. But where they are coming from has changed. They no longer come from Europe and Eastern Europe. They now come from four major countries, um, India, Pakistan, Nigeria and the Philippines. But net migration last year was 505,000. Uh, actually, pushed up to six. 600,000 in the latest data. That was far in excess of anything we saw um, was a member of the European Union. But the type of countries those, the, those workers are coming from are different and therefore employers are struggling to catch up with, um, you know, the, 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 if you like, the, the, the networks that are important in matching available workers with uh, employers. That, that that stuff is poorly understood by people who are not labour market economists. You've introduced you've introduced sand into the gears of the UK labour market as a result. So they're of coming into the country, but not necessarily the the, the the same level of employment that we were getting previously. Though. Correct, and perhaps Correct. different skills as well. I mean, I guess I don't know. No, no, no you're absolutely right. There are there is a different skill set. Um, we have uh, the corporate sector in the UK has become used to over the course of fifteen years since uh, a session of eight. EU countries in 2004 uh, to sourcing labour with that skill set from the likes of Poland, Lithuania, Bulgaria, Romania, etc., the old Eastern Bloc. A different uh, composition of individuals with different skill sets uh, introduce a friction into the labour market, which is another impediment to, to, to UK growth at this stage. Now, there will be an adjustment. Employers have scored the great successes of the private sector. They will adjust to different availability, different skill sets accordingly, but it takes time. The, the idea that these things um, uh, adjust as quickly as they do on your Bloomberg screen is a, is a fallacy. And and what you, you mentioned earlier with the lack of an industrial strategy, I mean, are we talking about really that and a few other things being a lack of proper leadership? I mean, we know there has been chaos in our politics really since the end of COVID, maybe even before that. Is it a yeah. lack of, you know, we had a chancellor who was in there for, for barely the blink of an eye. We've had several chancellors in. Is it really that there is just no coherent leadership in terms of getting the economy right. Yeah, and before you answer that, I mean, we're not alone in that, though, are we? There's political instability. I mean, COVID <laughs> has brought political instability all over the world. Yeah, I struggle. I struggle to attribute it all to UK domestic political instability. I think uh, if I... You know, the danger, an economist's biggest trap it can fall into is it sound like he has the answers to all questions. Um, but on this one uh, of the lack of, uh, it's not so much a lack of industrial strategy because we've had industrial strategies and plans for jobs and productivity plans, um, but they haven't been stuck to and committed to through any durable period of time. I mean, um, under George Osborne and then Philip Hammond and then the series of different chances we've had in recent years, they've all put a different veneer and a different emphasis on their 
some have called them industrial strategies, some of them called them plans for growth and, and different titles. It doesn't give the private sector a great um, great confidence that there's a stable counterparty to, to face off to. And so is it so much the absence of one or the absence of one that is consistent and people can believe is still going to be around when they actually put their, their capital to work? Again, these these capital allocation decisions, you make, you make a decision now, but the capital crystallizes in terms of making the investment and the revenues pay off in years, years, years to come. And therefore, you have to be confident that that plan is not going to be here today, gone tomorrow, and you're going to be left, if, if you excuse the butchering of metaphors, uh, holding the baby. Yeah, but I mean, that yeah, has because to be- we have political change coming around the corner, yeah. of course. But that plan, I mean, you're saying we haven't got a plan. That's part of the problem, isn't it? And, and if there is a plan, that means the government's spending money. And is the is the issue that we're facing that perhaps we're, you know, we're looking at more austerity because we've, you know, we've spent so much. So if we look at the money supply, you know, uh, it shot up, didn't it, in the UK? It was, I think it peaked at $3.2 trillion in September last yep. year. Yep. It's now down to a little over $3 trillion, which, shrinking, is a, yes. which is a lot. Yep. It's shrinking. That's quite a fall, though, isn't it, in a short space of time? Mm. So how much of that is influencing things? Because if... I'm not sure whether this, you know, it's valid, the argument, but if you have an increase in money, then that's going to create inflation because, you know, supposedly some people would argue that each each pound is worth less. Whether that's right or not, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. But if, if, if you did follow that line of argument, that line of reasoning, then if you decrease it by that amount, then you yeah. assume it would go the other way, well, but it's clearly well, we not. C- we could do a whole podcast on, on that, and, and, yeah. uh, on this subject of <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. the degree to which yes. monetary aggregates tell you anything about uh, inflation. Um, uh, but just a quick yes or no then, does it? No, no, <laughs> right. no it doesn't. Right. Okay. Um, were so, monetarists right on the way up uh, in terms of monetary growth and inflation, you know, being broadly synchronous, albeit with a lag? Yes, but have they been wrong? I mean, I've read a series of monetarist blogs that for 12 months have been telling me that inflation would fall like a stone in the UK and we should be cutting interest rates. Um, it, there is no real sign of inflation falling like said stone. And so um, I think being right in terms of the monetary aggregates once in 30 years does not base, provide the basis for a stable <laughs> that economic is the, But that level. is the reason no. why central banks, to try and re- reduce that money supply, that is the reason why central banks are pushing up interest rates, isn't it? So are they wrong? No, they're, 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 they are not wrong, but the monetary transmission is not just through the money supply. It is also through um, uh, a broader signalling process to, to, to the private sector. There is um, a... Uh, a, a sort of a, a, a time lag associated also in the UK economy between monetary policy decisions and their actual outcome on disposable incomes. And this is one of the things that's been poorly understood, if you like, about, about interest rates in this cycle. Initially, they were stimulative because they gave additional income to savers rather faster than they took money away from the disposable income of borrowers. But that is about to inflect as the mortgage refinance cycle runs through the UK economy. That means the monetary policy will be effective in deflating both 
the money supply and aggregate demand. Um, but the lag is rather greater than it was 15 years ago when a lot of uh, the, the, the assertions and the assumptions that fit into central bank models were built. And it may also be that they put their foot on, on the brake rather too hard because you're going to perhaps get an outcome that, that you don't want in terms of stalling. Well, I mean, because if I was to do that now, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, I'd be paying £1,000 more per month. I mean, who's got that sort of money? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is the um, the transmission mechanism from monetary policy to put some data to this. Um, when at the back end of 2021, before interest rates began to rise in the UK and around the world, um, average the co- average corporate company loan book was just over 2%, as it was for the household mortgage book. But since then, the, house, the average household mortgage has gone from 2% to 2.8%, whereas the average corporate debt book has gone from 2% to 6%. So it's passed through far quicker into the corporate sector than it has the household sector. But I can provide you a absolutely cast iron guarantee, the thing that economists can never provide. But on this one, I can be um, certain that that average interest rate for households on mortgage debt will continue rising now for at least, at least the next three years, almost agnostic of what happens because there will be a whole cohort of borrowers who will come back to the market who will not be able to find anything like the 2% that they widely remortgaged at between about 2018 and yeah. 2021. Well, I, I got 1.03% one, 1. is what oh, I managed to do. So we, yeah, okay, <laughs> okay, boastful, yes. boastful. Uh, I got caught in the other way and, and don't even look at my mortgage payments, which are astronomical. But uh, if we look then at what you know, what happens next? We kind of say, well, what are the reasons that we've fallen behind as far mm. as we have? If if we are moving forward, I mean, you've already talked about industrial strategy, but what is it that needs to happen to get Britain? I mean, many people think it's just not working. It's, it's bumbling along. It's not getting anywhere. We can't afford the services we need, all these various things. What are the answers? What should be the kind of, well, let's posit political change uh, in next year, probably. Um, what should be in the intro? What are the kind of things that leaders in that area can do to make things well, better? There's, there's two or three aspects. This first one is, 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 is simple stability. Um, the, the UK has been devoid, not uniquely, but probably most acutely of political stability for the last six or seven years. Um, the degree to which stability brings its own economic dividend, I, I think, obviously can be t- contended on the scale, but I don't think anybody contend the directional impact of um, political stability. So that's the first thing to say. Second thing is also to, to not get too hysterical on the financial and social challenges that the UK uh, economy faces. Um, If you took it another way, the UK's public sector debt is the second lowest as a percentage of GDP amongst the G7. Only Germany has a lower um, public sector debt to GDP ratio. So um, we are not alone in facing those um, uh, fiscal challenges and arguably we're at the better end of the distribution. The other thing also on a positive note to talk about the UK is our demographic profile. There are many, many developed countries that have a far less favourable demographic profile than the UK has, uh, the likes of Japan, of Germany, of Italy. Um, We have a 
pretty favorable picture. But your question was, how do we incrementally make things better from here? Well, I think through the cycle, agnostic of who has been in power, and we're talking about a 30-year trend here, the UK has run a capital light economic model. If you look at the national accounts, GDP, we started the podcast talking about it, about 17% of GDP has been allocated to investment spending over the last 30 years. Compare that to the G7 average of 21%, we're running in corporate terms a CapEx-like model. If you if you run a CapEx-like, capital expenditure-like model as a corporate, you can inflate your earnings for the short run, but you're going to do reasonable damage to your earnings potential over the long term. And I think we need to recognize that we have to go on that reverse journey of running a much more investment-intensive economy than the one we have become used to running over the last three decades. Well, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have been saying, well, we want to get productivity up. We can't see wages go up without productivity improvements. But you're not going to get productivity improvements without investment in the in the processes. They're going to, you can't tell people they've got to work harder. You've yeah, got to in, invest in the mechanisation that's going to enable But you also that. can't tell companies to invest, can you? They, they have to have incentives. You absolutely can't. You absolutely can't. Um, I would, I would, I would say that the incentive structure has to be uh, to there for the. It's not so much the company as the end saver. The end, if you're given the choice at the moment as to whether to consume the marginal pound or save the marginal pound, and you choose to save, where are you choosing to save it? And I'll give you a stat. I know you two like uh, statistics. the the UK The UK has a. Um, a residential property market that is three and a half times the size of its domestic economy. The US economy has a residential mortgage market the same size as its equity market. That tells you there is a, or at least give it decent evidence, that there is a big allocation problem here of, of the marginal pound to the least productive part of the UK economy, which is housing and residential uh, activity. Um, that um, has been a response to uh, the tax um, culture of rewarding the pound saved on a pretty unproductive part of the economy, which is residential property, versus the marginal benefit and the marginal tax advantage of doing that same pound saved in uh, promoting investment, business investment and, and, and growing companies. Yeah, and of course, when that when that happens, that just pushes that just push, pushes house prices up, doesn't it? As well, so we're sort Absolutely. of we're making Absolutely. it worse. And it's we have we've got ourselves a we've got ourselves a very very difficult legacy mm-hmm. that no politician wants to unpick because it's deeply unpopular. And you know, as much as I would like to pretend that you know the conversation we're having would in any way influence <laughs> uh, decisions going forward, the reality is that. Politicians know that um, house prices, for some reason, how high, high house prices and rising mm. house prices uh, makes them popular with their their voter base, despite the evidence and the growing evidence that it's deeply, deeply damaging for the UK economy. Are we just moving too yeah. quickly? So on the one side, has I mean, you talked about how you know we're we're going to reach this cliff edge, aren't we, where people come off their mortgages and we're going to see the impact of the the Bank of England's monetary policy, perhaps in a big way. And you know, I wonder whether they're going to go, oh my God, we didn't allow for the lag, uh, and we've really overshot and made things worse so is that part of the problem and then secondly with the government saying well okay let's cut back on spending because interest rates are going to go up the cost of uh, of, of government debt is is shooting up and we we can't afford that if they if they would said well okay well actually we do need to spend we've got to get over this imbalance that exists in the in the economy between the poor and the rich we've got to ensure that the investment is happening 
so mm. that we get out mm. of this situation, out, out of the doldrums. If there's a bit more moderation and a bit more time allowed, would we well, be in a better place? You are sounding a lot like Liz Truss, dare I say it. And there's, there's yeah, a- I know, well, I don't, and I really don't want to do that. <laughs> well, no, but I can, but he, I can see the danger often, if you put often too much does. investment too quickly, though, yeah. then you're going to make inflation worse, aren't you? Which but, was her but, problem. A country that runs dual deficits, and we come back to what we talked about 10, 15 minutes ago, the dual deficits of the UK economy. Um, you are, as former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney said, you are reliant on the generosity of strangers. And that comes with a responsibility that if you're going to take a path, which is uh, uh, running a larger deficit over the near term to invest in capital deepening into your economy, and you recognize that that is going to be secured by borrowing on public markets, your gilt markets, um, you do need to prepare the ground in a way that Liz Truss and Quasi Quateng categorically did not. Now, there's many no, so of, they may have been right, but they came out of nowhere with it. 100%. Is that what you're saying? And, and so, mm. um, you know, again, uh, hopefully showing a degree of humility and self-awareness. There's many things that I, as an economist, have said that obliged pretty badly. What I did say in the run-up to Liz Truss being elected is that her scorched earth policy, and that was the phrase I used in my columns of the institutions, you know, the, the active briefing against the Bank of England, the sidelining of the Office of Budget Responsibility, the sacking of the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury on the first day that Kwasi Kwarteng was Chancellor. All of that said that they were not preparing the ground, rather they were burning it to a, uh, a shred. Um, and therefore, did they were they surprised at the capital markets reaction? Now, I can hear there's some listeners who were probably screaming at their uh, audio device uh, saying, but hang on, guilt yields are now even higher than they were at the time of the mini budget. Does that not sort of tear your argument apart? Um, I think the reality is that the market made the conclusion in September, October last year that government policy was going to be uh, inflationary and had not um, generated, uh, and I not mean so pre- we not prepared the ground. I shudder to think how if that policy had been allowed to sort of take its natural path, what kind of inflation level yeah. would we be printing right now? And that would, yeah. And, and in a way, what you're talking about is confidence, because as you said, you said about not preparing the ground. I mean, well, the factor in our way, I suppose we haven't really talked about in what went wrong with the UK economy and what might go right, is building up confidence. You said stability certainly helps with that, which it clearly yeah. does. But there has to be more than that. There has to be a sense that the economy is actually on its way somewhere that will benefit investors. Yeah. And, and uh, on in that, are you also saying, just on your last point then, that that we should be the, the government should be spending. There should be we should we should be encouraging uh, investment through a, a, a targeted action by by the government. Having this strategy that you're talking about, which is going to involve some government spending, and that's going to help productivity yep. and, and get a focus so that we are not just a you know and. and do we in doing that need to ensure that we've mm. got something else beyond the finance industry that's going to see us through? Yeah, I, I fully expect whoever is in power at the next general election, and maybe even before, and, and here's a prediction that may age badly, but we should pull the tape, shouldn't we, in 12 months' time, which is that the the government may be tempted, the current government, that is, to move its financial rules, what are known as its fiscal rules, to a uh, 
a public sector net worth rule, and, and, and I'll unpack what that means. So the public sector net worth rule effectively is, for those of us with long enough memories, and I know all three of us do, remember Gordon Brown's golden rule, you only borrow to fund investment. Well, it's a, it's a version of that, which suggests that if you borrow to fund an asset, which has a value to the public sector and the economy as a whole, it really should sit outside the confines of your financial fiscal rules. And I think if, you're, if you credibly lay out those plans. And the good news for the government is that the head of the OBR, Richard Hughes, wrote the paper on this. So they're probably not going to be criticised from the OBR to take, for taking this path. We rather like criticising your own homework. Um, I, I think that is one of the pathways where you could run a rather larger deficit than is currently being run with a very clear um, strategy that you're trying to deepen the capital stock of the public sector. Yeah, and you, you're attaching your turn to it, like any of us. When you're attaching your turn to it, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think that's going to happen, though? Are we, are, I do. You're saying you think I do. Right. I do think it's going to happen. And now, whether it'll happen under the Labour government or whether the Tories, who have shown themselves very astute to doing this over the last 13 years of just basically nicking Labour ideas and packaging them up as their, as their own, be it the energy price cap, be it the national living wage, be it the National Infrastructure Commission. You know, you can think of a number of policies that began as red and be- became blue. Absolutely. So yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wholly rule that out as coming into play in the autumn as, in, in as a way of funding uh, something of a retail offering, as political strategists call it, going to the next general election. Um, but you come back to what Roger was talking about, about credibility here. You know, if you, in order to build the credibility, you also need to hold up your end of the bargain and make sure you're not just being cute with your accounting to reclassify some strange line items on the public sector balance sheet as suddenly classed as investment. And one one can think of, for example, you know, is the government going to start claiming that teacher salaries are investment because they're investing in human capital? Now, you could possibly, you know, rather abstract and, you know, slightly um, uh, university common room fuel, you know, alcohol fuel debate, you could argue that that would be um, uh, public sector net investment. But I think... It's part of presenting a, a, a narrative that you are in control of what you're allocating, why you're allocating it, and with a clear strategy of how you're going to make that payback yeah. in the future. Yeah, when you go, the payback, payback works in two ways, of course. Yeah. You can invest money and get a better return, or you can invest money to try and stop the return falling, which might happen in you mm. know some of these sectors if yeah. we don't pay people enough and we start losing we start losing workers. There'll be a bit, so sort of, like, bit of both just, in that. Yeah. So it's yeah. so how so I just I mean we're getting close to the end, but how, compared to other countries, I mean, are we? I mean, are we that much worse? And are these other countries doing better because they are making the this sort of public sector investment and and building a strategy? to get out of COVID, which is really what we're talking about, isn't it? Well, uh, when one looks at the Inflation Reduction Act and the EU equivalent in terms of their green recovery plan, you you do see a very clear um, allocation of public sector money towards fueling a recovery that uh, initially was part of the pandemic recovery, but let's not kid ourselves, part of the pandemic legacy is a recognition that supply chains were too long, there was an over-reliance, particularly on China, and the major developed economies are not happy with that economic model going forward. The UK, I think, wants to play along, but is nervous because of the events of Brexit and the events of the mini-budget of allocating quite the public sector balance sheet that 
particularly the US and to a slightly lesser extent the Europeans have thus far done, um, there remains a very strong debate within government, within Westminster, as to whether it should take that approach. I think a um, uh, a classic British compromise uh, will be the end result mm. of all of this. We will see. Simon, thank you so much for doing that for us. My pleasure. Well, well, we'll see. As you say, some of this you said we should dig the tape out in 12 months' time, and believe you me, we <laughs> yeah, will. We'll play back to you, Simon. Uh, good to talk. Catch you again soon. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was all very interesting. And you, and you know what? I like him because he agrees with me on lots of things as well. And that doesn't happen often. I'm unsurprised. <laughs> I'm unsurprised. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is a very interesting analysis. And we will call him back in a year's time and see if uh, if he's proved right. But uh, a little bit more optimism, perhaps, than I yeah. expected. However, something we can't have much optimism about is our next subject. Yeah. Well, look, I've just been in the United States. And uh, it, it, I was surprised just how much en- energy consumption there is in the United States. Everyone is driving around in these massive cars. And I think the energy consumption in the US is like two or three times per uh, head of population that it is in, in the UK. And there is clearly no concern about the environment. At least, the you know, I was in Michigan and in Illinois. Certainly there, no concern. You know, people are driving around in these cars. They've got, I, I spoke to people who had two houses and they were heating houses they weren't even living in at the time. It's complete disregard for the environment. And I, I just thought, well, we should all just give up hope. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're seeing all these massive Massive increases in temperatures yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just increases in temperatures, generally dire, unusual, extreme events all over the place. And yeah. I think the point in all this is, have we reached the point of no return? Have we got to the point where all our various ideas about uh, staying below certain percentages, certain uh, ways of, of avoiding catastrophe have, have basically not been adhered to since the COP, the last COP, whatever it was? Um, I think we need to ask the question, have we come so far that we have got to change our objectives somehow to try and live perhaps more with what happens rather than try to halt it or reverse it. I think that we need and to I'm going to be that. the pessimist on this and say that there's just too many people who don't care or don't believe it's an issue. And uh, by the time they come around to, you know, a sensible way of thinking, is it just going to be too late? Well, we will find out. We will take an idea from someone who knows about the numbers in all this and where we've got to. And that's coming up next week. Next week on, on The Why Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. Thanks for listening today. Catch you next Bye. week. Bye. The Why Curve.